Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. On today's show, we will talk about the drama in Miami, rumblings of a, a player's strike on the ATP side that got very, very public with Vashek Pospisil's conduct on the court going after ATP chairman Andrea Gaudenzi. Uh, but first, let's address the fact that None of our big three are playing Miami, a Masters 1000 tournament. They all have their reasons, and we'll get into all of them one by one. But, you know, this feels like something, Joel, that we're going to have to get used to is the big three, members of the big three saying, well, you know what? I don't need to play this Masters 1000 tournament. It's not really my top priority. I'll sit this one out. Already extant based on where they all are with their careers, given their aging and their scheduling. And so now with the pandemic and all the whole way the tennis calendar is flowing. Yeah, very much the case that we're going to just see. And it's a little bit of a, a look of things to come and also the absence and how we how we miss them. I think, Gil, that they all made the right decision. I mean, Novak said that he wanted to spend time with his family and with the bubble and and COVID and, you know, he's won Masters 1000s and he's made no secret that he wants to trim down his schedule and really focus on the slams. Um, And Rafa and Roger are still nursing injuries. So everybody made the right decision. A couple of factors here. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, Gil, what? I was gonna say, there's a couple of factors here that are unconventional. One. Normally, you fly to the United States at this time of year and you play two tournaments. You play Indian Wells, you play Miami. Indian Wells is like the all-time favorite tournament of the players. They just, they love being there. They all gush about it. Miami, especially since moving from Key Biscayne, it seems to be a tournament that everyone complains about. Um, And in this case, with Indian Wells canceled, it would have been the flight to the U.S., just for Miami. Nadal says he's injured. Federer wants to rest the knees. And Djokovic says, I want to take this time to be with my family. Yeah, the Sunshine double was a lot different. It's a lot different because now it's just the Sunshine single. And uh, Miami, I mean, the players have really enjoyed that tournament over the years, but also they can't enjoy Miami the way they're used to enjoying Miami. So that creates things. And I think our three, like you pointed out, the injuries, pragmatism, upcoming clay season. All right. They took a, took a pass. And how much would that surface prepare you for clay? You know, this being kind of a one-off, it, it really does make sense. Was it you, Amy, or someone else who told me once they thought, hey, what if you just had, what if Miami played on clay? And then it could go, you go Indian Wells, which by the way is ultra slow hardcore. It's sort of like, it's, it's, it's the slowest hardcore in the world. And then you go to Miami and you play on clay and then you go to Europe and you're kind of there, but that's a, intriguing notion but you're right how much would it and then also the whole whole physical toll i mean these guys are great our three but they're they're in their 30s so they want to be smart and uh and gear up i guess it's i guess it's monte carlo next it also seems like everyone 
minus Federer is kind of targeting the clay. Nadal always wants to hold serve at his home slam. Um, but then for, for players like Djokovic and then even team and Tsitsipas, they're all saying, I want to win Roland Garros. They're all coming for Nadal's crown, it seems. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, you have to think that if you're Nadal and you're not, if you're feeling 90%, Let's just make sure I'm 100% for this clay court swing, which, by the way, Rafa has not dominated in the last two years like, like he had been in years prior. It, it, was, it was the Rafa sweep for so long, and now it's the, well, Rafa's good by the time he hits Paris, but he's still shaky in Monte Carlo, and then he's rounding into form in, in Madrid. It, it's been different for him, so maybe he's going to try to really hit the ground running uh, at the, for the clay court season. Well, and again, I- only six months since Roland Garros last year, yeah. I did a story on on that very thing, Gil, once, and there have been years actually when Rafa uh, was injured and was either was not able to play the entire clay court table or uh, lost in in like Barcelona or something like early round. Um, each time, though, it, what my what my story proved was it really didn't matter if he did well or he played in one or two or if he ran the table. The result was the same and there was no one that was more beneficial than the other. So the bottom line is that Rafa knows how to prepare himself for Roland Garros. Yeah, having gone 102, 102 there, 100 yeah. wins, two losses. Yeah, he's got that Paris thing pretty good so it'll be interesting to see how the whole clay thing starts to shake so yeah it's a it's a, it's unfortunate for Miami but onward yeah it's an interesting data set though when Nadal's only lost two times so you can study what happened in those two years um but let's go to uh, Novak's has an interesting reason quite frankly quite frankly a more interesting reason than the other two which is uh something that you don't you don't hear so often from, from a lot of players, which is just, I want to stay, you know, I want to use this time for family. And it it gets me thinking about a very pandemic era issue that, that some of the players face, which is that, you know, you can't really travel with your family anymore. Like you, like you used to be able to, there's no reason why Novak couldn't have just taken his wife and his kids and gone to Miami as a, as an entire family. But with these, with these bubble conditions or bubble-like conditions on the uh, on tour now, it gets a lot more lonely. And for a player like Novak, you're, you're having to leave without your family. There is such a thing as mental health. And can you imagine being in Miami right now? And for those of our of our viewers and listeners that are outside of the United States, Florida has not been as serious about the pandemic in terms of restrictions, distancing, masking, lockdown, as a lot of other states in the United States. So you've got spring breakers, kids, teenagers, college students from all over the United States converging on Miami right now, partying, you know, they're out on Nikki Beach. Can you imagine being a player, a young person locked in your room and you can't go out? Um, having to listen to the party going on outside and you're not even allowed to go out and grab dinner or be with your family. No, it's just tough. It's a strange, yeah. And it's funny. And maybe, and that's, you know, Miami's had a lot of sizzle. I mean, I know from having been to that tournament a few times, it's kind of had a lively connection with the city. And so that's not on the table this year, but at the same time, there's the 
stress and the constant testing, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, mental health, big, big factor in the contemporary tennis world. Have you been since they moved it to hard rock, Joel? Have not been there. Okay. No, Amy has. Amy has. Okay. So I, I went when it was in Key Biscayne. Uh, and I, I haven't been since it's gone to hard rock. When I made those comments earlier in the show about players complaining, I'm specifically referring to pretty much any player who I've heard asked, well, do you prefer the old Miami or the new Miami? They say, oh, I miss the old Miami. There was space to roam around. It was just a much more player-friendly grounds. The facility. Uh, yeah, facility Amy, wise. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, so so I want to ask you, Amy, what, what mm-hmm. do you think of uh, new versus old? Um, the... The Hard Rock Stadium itself was not configured exactly right for tennis, and this would be 2019, and it was the first year that they did it, so they were still figuring things out. Um, It's a very, uh, the way they had the seating was very vertical, and um, there were, you know, poles and posts, and and the, the stadium was cut in half. Um, so it wasn't, it was not ideal for viewing. Now the outer courts were okay. They were pretty good. One thing I will say, I'll give it total thumbs up. What they did um, was they upped the um, customer satisfaction or the experience. All the staff, everybody, they were just tripping over people to make sure that fans felt welcome and they were having a good time. And so the customer service was really ratcheted up. But, you know, they had like AstroTurf and, you know, it, it, it didn't have quite that ambiance. Yeah, I'm looking, as you say these things, I'm looking for someone, the tennis tournament facilities manager of the future, the person that team that has a new a, vi- a, 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 a new vision of how we experience a sports event and how does that involve streaming and always you know, these places have, have adapted to these things so what are the ways uh i think amy inspired me to this a couple of years ago to some some app where you can sit wherever you want until the person comes to claim their seat you know just different ways to experience the viewing mm-hmm. experience and of course the miami one is kind of into a football venue so it's not from the grounds up the the prior Key Biscayne facility, you know, that was the that was the third place the tournament had been located, third facility since it started in '85. So it was not the original one. I mean, that was the one in Key Biscayne opened in '94. So there's all this kind of stuff going on to finally bring it bring it to life. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Miami continues to evolve. Indian Wells had some growth pains at one point too until Larry Ellison bought it and started building a new stadium and new seats and internet and all this stuff. Well, you have me thinking, Joel, um, in terms of new ways to present a tennis tournament in the short attention span era, the US Open has some courts where you can watch multiple matches at once. And I'm thinking in a football stadium like Miami, why not set it up? Like if you go to a a table tennis event or a wrestling event, sports that are played in, uh, in a smaller space, you can set it up where you can watch three matches at once. I'm just, like uh, it's just a tennis. thought. Like college tennis. Right, like it's college when you, tennis. When you go, when you watch a college match and yeah. you see multiple, there's, there might be, there's just some ways, it, it'll be interesting. And this will segue into our, our next topic about the economic structure of tennis, about how, how tennis presents itself. 
Yeah, well, let's take a break. Afterwards, we will get to the rumblings of ATP unrest in Miami. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. If you've been on tennis Twitter or, or anything like that in the last 24 hours, you've seen the Vashik Pospisil incident where uh, he, he very publicly, after getting a, a, a point penalty that resulted in, in the first set to his opponent, he basically talked about being yelled at in a board meeting for one and a half hours by the president of the ATP, Andrea Gaudenzi. Um, Amy, there's a lot going on right now behind the scenes, and that was kind of it spilling into the public. But how would you characterize the moment that we're in right now on the ATP tour? Unusual um, because of the confluence of the pandemic and uh, what has been a recurring problem in professional tennis, and that is the splintered nature and the lack of centralized leadership. It was reported by a Canadian journalist by the name of Stephanie Miles, and I believe her blog is called opencourt.ca, that all of this stemmed from a player meeting with Gaudenzi, the head of the ATP, and the players. And she says, and I'm quoting her article, what we heard late last night was there was a player vote, or at least a strong discussion about not playing the Miami Open at all, end quote. So in other words, we're talking about the prospect of a work stoppage, a very serious, you know, event. And, and the person who is kind of spearheading the uh, players to unite in this uh, players association is Novak Djokovic. And uh, like we said, unfortunately, he wasn't there. So it fell to Pospisil, kind of the second in command in this effort to, um, to try to handle all of this by himself. And uh, he just got frustrated. He's a human being and, and it all came out in that match. So it's just a highly unusual occurrence. Well, he, he did apologize for the incident. It, you know, it's not, I, I think it's something that he probably regrets. And I think deep down inside, he probably wanted the world to know what had happened in that meeting because he was upset about it. That was my, my read on the situation there. You know, that, the, go ahead, Joel. Yeah, well, I just, it's interesting that and Pospel did not make him, was not available to media after his match. And it gets this whole, you know, a lot of interesting things about the PTPA and the leadership and the economic significance of Djokovic, Nadal and Federer because they've had their thoughts about the PTPA and they've had their thoughts about to a degree of what tennis should look like. So this is really interesting, very interesting time, interesting topics, periods. And then you layer in the pandemic and you kind of see, well, what, what, what's, we all know the economics of tennis are in some interesting flux right now. So how's that gonna look? 
And there was a really good article that came out uh, within the last couple of days from Bloomberg. You can you can Google it. See, I, I'd written the author. David Yaffe Bellany um, was the uh, the writer that basically just lays out everything that's happened in tennis up to this point in terms of the structure and the economics of the sport. And Gil and I were both struck by the graphic in that article that said that basically that tennis has one of the highest potentials in terms of revenue, but the, their TV revenue is one of the lowest. So their lack of organization is causing them to leave money on the table for for media money that they're getting, which in turn lowers the prize money. And that is something that the players are obviously very concerned about, the, the lower prize money, because they're trying to make a living. I wonder what the methodology is for determining what the potential is. You know, it's like- it's like Well, they, they did specify that. It was how many people consider themselves a fan of tennis. Right, but that, okay. So, so you're measuring the popularity by many metrics. Tennis is the fourth most popular sport in the world. And it is not even close to the fourth most profitable sport in the world when it comes to television. And that's because you have no consolidation. I mean, you, there's tons and tons of examples of this. Why does an internet company bundle cable television, Wi-Fi, and phone? Because the more you put together, the more you can charge for everything all at once when you're when you're a tournament that, and, and you're trying to sell the rights uh, from a television perspective of your one week to two week tournament, you do not have the leverage that you would have if, uh, if let's say everything was this kind of year long package. Well, again, and, and part I'm, sorry, I'm sorry about this thing with potential. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, a lot of people consider themselves fans and I don't know what that always translates into action. And I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like where leadership is, who's, con who's controlling things, how many people, you know, it's like, we talk about how, well, the things people most want to watch are the slams. Yeah, that's a, that's an employee base of 128. I mean, so in other words, we're uh, 100, we're not saying the slams could have 256 people in them. So it's just interesting to see, and it's, it would be fat, it would be really interesting to really sit down and see all the ways this economics could play out and how it ought to, I don't know. So yeah, I mean, I, I just think that um, another aspect to what you were saying, Gil, was that uh, the men and the women, and there's been talk, you know, Federer, Nadal have, have tweeted that they think, you know, now it's time to really look at this. And if you read that article, they've looked at it many times combining the tours or consolidating the tours, the men and women. And I'm a big believer that that it should and and now more than ever because we're in a pandemic and and we've we're potentially losing fans so you need to then um give the fans uh, a lot of bang for their buck just like we do during the grand slams and that's where the money the ratings the hype um so let's take that good idea and and spread it to really the rest of the tour. So I would love to see them combine, but according to this Bloomberg article, um, it's the ATP that's holding it up. And in 2008, they were presented with a proposal that showed a billion dollars in revenue growth. And that's a billion in addition to what they already make. And the men said, no, we don't wanna combine with the women, so. So many cultural things that go along with that, right? We all, we all agree the slams, 
And then the dual gender events of uh, Miami and Indian Wells, other ones around the world, Beijing, all these ones. And so how do those, how do we figure out a way to make that work? But then culturally through, through the rest of the ranks, then it can get really complicated. And there's a lot of, there's so many attitudes that get in the way. And it has to do with even the players, even their very attitude towards how good people are as players and what marquee value is and who watches them and who promotes them. And yet at the same time, we all agree, fans love attending events like Miami and Indian Wells, men, women, Grand Slams, that's when our sport looks best and that's when our sport is most distinct. So it's, so it's interesting to see, like, I like that Federer and Nadal have talked about some form of a merger. I don't know what that means to each of them, truly, right. truly. It's not like, it's not exactly the same, like the American League and the National League who should form Major League Baseball, which they are. So what does that what does that mean to you, Roger? Does that mean are you, are you okay? So you're okay with your your prime court time, or do we have different courts? And of course, we had a very fun discussion a while ago that's also resurfaced in the media. Oh, so now should the woman play best of five? Should the men play best of three? Lots, no answers to this, but some interesting questions to to consider around all that. Gil, I just think that. As regards Novak, what he's trying to do is extraordinary. And tennis has been played for a long time. And and there was um, a quote in that Bloomberg article. And the guy said, you know, I know Bjorn Borg. He's a really good friend of mine. But um, he, he really didn't contribute to the greater good of the sport of tennis. Novak is kind of the opposite of that to his own detriment on the court, he is trying to improve the sport. Now he may not know how to do it. He doesn't have a Harvard MBA in organizational management or, or whatever, um, but he's, he is smart and he's trying to use everything he has, his wherewithal and still play professional tennis and be the number one player in the world um, and, and try to make the sport better. I think he does have a, a soft spot. I think he has a soft spot for the lower lower ranked players, and I think his track record has shown that. Uh, be, before the pandemic started, he he made donations to to a lot of the lower ranked players um, that that play, you know, in, in Serbia and um, in that in that part of the world as well. And I think he's been consistent there. Well, well I'd like to ahead, see put out, I'd like to see him have uh, around some of this stuff even though he wasn't there, some statements, I agree. some leadership, some plans. And also, also with this PTA, PTPA, and I've said this from the beginning from when they were talking at the U.S. Open, how is this going to benefit all the spectators? What do you, what's going to be the benefit? Okay, so we're going to, uh, sure, let's get more money. Let's see more people making a living. What's that going to pan out into? Is that going to be, are you going to be more accessible to fans? Are you going to create more different things? What are, and that's never articulated. It's just, yeah, we want more of a voice. Yeah, they, okay, okay, what's that, what's that then look like besides more money? Yeah. I would like to see the PTPA advocate for a more organized structure whereby the sport has a commissioner and maybe there's an executive council and every slam and everybody has a seat on that executive council, but there is one commissioner and there's one, um, tour men and women and then there's a lower tour men and women and and just streamline everything and organize it i would love to see the players union advocate for that that would be fascinating if they did that um it'd be interesting uh, you look back in the 80s there was a thing called the miptc which is the men's 
International Professional Tennis Council, and they had these different bodies. And then eventually that became, out of that came the ATP, the ATP tour. There'd been the ATP before since 72, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, a lot of roadblocks got to get hurdles for that to happen, whether, whether even the commissioner. And I think this plan in 08 that Larry Scott, who headed the ATP and the WTA was trying to bring was an interesting step in that direction and why that was not quite warm to. And again, 08, that's when, uh, you know, that's not too long ago. So it's just, I know there's, I don't know if that's what the PTPA is, is advocating for. I mean, they're not. Yeah, really- I'm not sure either. I mean, I think if you read about the history of labor movements all over the world, it's always messy. I mean, it's never neat and clean and um, organized. It's bumpy. Read about Kurt Flood and the death threats that he got and what he had to go through to help um, Major League Baseball players achieve free agency. Um, but they're trying. They're trying. Um, the question that I have that I want to pose to you guys um, it really has nothing to do necessarily with the men and women, but the question, central question, how many people should be able to make a living playing professional tennis? I don't know the answer to that in any field. I mean, it really probably shouldn't be thousands, right? No, I don't, you know, well, look, okay, let's get down to, let's get to, okay, let's look at another sport, for example, football. What are there, 32 teams, 32 teams in the NFL? And that appears to be going pretty profitable and they're, 40, 50 people on a team. So 1,600 people make a living playing pro football. Tennis, we agree that the Grand Slams are the pinnacle of what our sport can be. That's, that's a, that, those are our Super Bowls. 128 men, 128 women play singles in each of those. Yeah, I, I think, uh, look, I, I think that the difference in the comparison is that if you are the 150th best football player in the world, you're a very, very, very rich person. And that's not the case in tennis. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the fallback is, is this is an individual sport. There, there is less wealth to be, to be spread around. That's and it's not why it is. It's, it. also called, it's also called popularity. And it's interesting, this thing about the fourth most popular in the world. You know, sports in the world, I was talking to someone from a European I know recently. Sports in the world isn't as big in other parts of the world as is in the United States. You don't have it. There's sports is big in countries, but it's not like if you, if you grow up, if you grow up as a child in America, sports is like part of the part of your culture. It's there. Families are are tossing out sports instead of education. But another yeah. Anyway, I, 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 I think because tennis is also an individual sport, golf might be an equivalent. And I think mm-hmm. there are 245 players on the PGA Tour, you know, so that that might be more of a of an equivalent. So if you have like the 250 kind of cutoff, it's just something to think about. Yep. And if, if you compare tennis to MMA, uh, tennis looks great. So, you know, there are obviously <laughs> levels to it in terms of uh, h- how the players are doing, but you know, a couple of requests that, that I personally have for the PTPA become less abstract. You know, it is still abstract. It is still mm-hmm. just an idea. And uh, I think, I think they need to bring on a, a female leader. No, they can't say that their intention is to include the women if uh, Vashik and Novak are going to be the, the faces of this and they're not going to introduce anyone else to, to, to lead the, the WTA side of things. Well, we're confused. We're confused still about what their articulation of affinity with the WTA is. 
Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of in, it's, it's kind of uncertain and ambiguous. So I'd like to hear more. So that's, that's something part of it. But, you know, the question of, yeah, how many people should be making a living out of tennis? But again, it's an entertainment thing. It's a sport. It's authentic. It's an entertainment. And what does it exist in the world? How many people should be making a living broadcasting podcasts or writing or, or how many doctors should there be? We're not quite making a living doing this yet. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> all right um well we will continue to monitor the ptpa as we always do if you want to go back in the archives we actually get into more depth on the ptpa you can just scroll through our episodes i believe this is the 31st so uh there's not there's not that many you'll find it uh, but this has been fun miami um is going on without the big three uh but so who knows what's next but uh we will talk to you very very soon Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Remember to leave a like, a comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as well. That is always a very, very big help. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.